The year is 1024. London is a city facing huge changes. Large number of Danes seem to be moving into the town. This was being supported by the new King of England, a king who clearly wanted to pacify the city by increasing the number of Danish residents living within it. But he wasn't just picking on London by itself. Rather, the Danish king of England and Denmark was trying something else. He was attempting to create an empire. And he succeeded. It is a measure of how harsh history tends to treat his legacy that we often forget that Canute of England almost became a very British Charlemagne. A few changes in his decisions here and there and there is no reason why he could not have established a new geopolitical empire across both the North and Irish seas. There is no reason why England should not only have become one of the Scandinavian nations, it could have become the central Scandinavian nation. King Canute came close to achieving this during his lifetime, and yet Within his gaining of this empire, he also sowed the seeds of its destruction and left it so that within a decade of his death, not only did Canute's great pan-Scandinavian empire collapse, it also set into motion the events that eventually led to the fall of England to the Normans. So, how did London fit into this? And how close did Canute come to changing world history? That's kind of what we're going to examine this episode. Hi, my name is Saul, and welcome to chapter 37 of the story of London, the Umbral Empire. When we left our tale in the last episode, the year was 1023, and Canute may or may not have personally led a smash-and-grab raid of St. Paul's Church to retrieve the relics of the recently martyred St. Elphage. But while Canute seemed intent on making life for London as miserable as possible, this was merely a sideshow for him. Canute was clearly having to focus upon his Scandinavian holdings. England was, as a nation, just holding on as loyal to him, a legion of helpful English collaborators, led by Godwin, the Earl of Wessex, and his queen, Emma, and the new compliant Archbishop of Canterbury, were able to keep a lid on things so Canute could focus his attention on his more distant holdings. Once again, we're forced to deal with obscure and often contradictory historical sources, and things get rather confusing over the next few years. And I find myself, once again, being in the unfortunate position as narrator where to explain what was going on, I have to talk about anywhere and everywhere except London for a while. But while I have, on occasion, span off on tangents for entire episodes in order to explain the context of events going on in London, in this case... I'm going to draw a line here. 
It's not because it was too complicated, rather to do it justice would require a significant number of episodes. The complexity of what was going on is staggering and fascinating, and I had originally planned to spend many long minutes detailing with the minute of Knut's empire. But all of this takes us away from London. Thus, once again, I have made a choice to present to you the most bare-bones description of the events that take place over the next few years, and assure you there is significantly more detail going on than as I describe things. If you ever wish to get lost in a wonderful maze of history, I would heartily recommend you get into the one around Canute and the gaining of his territory in Scandinavia. It's awesome. By 1024 then, Canute is nominally in charge of Denmark as well as England. We know that as recently as 1022, we had seen pirates, aka Vikings, raid around the Isle of Wight and Canute and Godwin and others had sailed to Denmark to deal with them. And also by 1024, we know the whole confusing situation of who was running Denmark on behalf of Canute had been seemingly sorted. Basically, the young person in charge was his infant son, Harthur Canute, who was still a child. And the real power had been originally Earl Thorkill the Tall, and then Canute's brother-in-law, Jarl Ulf. With this sorted, Denmark could now run itself quietly. All good. But it appears in 1024 that Canute was about to face a crisis unlike anything he faced before. So, back in England, his nation seemed to be engaged in a long, protracted war with the Scots, and it was now entering its eighth year. Meanwhile, at the same time, there were tensions and border clashes between his people in Mercia and the Welsh kingdoms. Now, these two things alone would have consumed the attention of any previous Anglo-Saxon king. But at the same time this was happening, Jarl Ulf seems to have gone into his head that Canute being based in England and not Denmark was some kind of insult to the Danish. Also, because Ulf felt there were growing issues with Norway and Sweden, that being focused on England meant that Denmark was being ignored by their king, and this was a danger to all the residents. Canute was focused on his war with the Scots. Ulf felt Denmark was being left out to dry. But no matter how passionately Jarl Ulf felt, he couldn't just make himself king. He needed someone else to be king that he could support, and luckily he had the candidate, the king's young son, Harthur Canute. Now, how he convinced Harthur Canute to stand with him is a whole saga unto itself. Supposedly, he had had a letter that either he forged or that Queen Emma forged, saying that Canute was happy with Harthur Canute standing for king in his own right. Whatever was the case, and whatever evidence he had, it was all Ulf needed, and he got Harthur Canute to break and establish himself as king of an independent Denmark. And then, literally weeks after this happened, all hell breaks loose in Denmark, because when Ulf had been warning folks that Sweden and Norway were a threat to Denmark, he wasn't kidding. Because at this exact moment, Sweden and Norway joined forces and invaded Denmark. 
Now, their reasons for this invasion are kind of long and convoluted, but let's just say that they had good enough justifications for themselves. And the two sides had two leaders, and the Norwegian side was led by none other than Olaf Haraldsson, the former Joms Viking, who was supposedly the guy who'd torn down London Bridge in 1014, and we spent an entire chapter proving that he hadn't torn down London Bridge in 1014, but anyway, he had been a Joms Viking, and his saga had said that he'd been best friends with Ethelred and Edmund Ironsides of England, fighting for them. And now he was claiming the throne of Norway, not with the full support of the Norwegians, as he was Christian and Norway was proud of its pagan traditions, but he had enough to support him in his invasion of Denmark, and his forces were supplemented by those of a Swedish warlord. Olaf's plan was remarkably simple. Turn up, get some local Danes to join forces with you, and then expel Canute's loyalists while Canute was busy in England. It was a good plan, and it seemed to work as a bunch of Danes did indeed join their forces, and Ulf and Harthaganut basically besieged themselves in Upland and prepared for the inevitable onslaught. And at that exact same moment, however, Canute arrived. See, Canute wasn't going to take Ulf's nonsense attempt to usurp him from Denmark lying down, and so he acted with surprising alacrity. Upon getting word of Ulf's shenanigans in Denmark, Canute had handed running England over to Godwin of Wessex, lavishing him with gilands and gifts to keep him sweet, and then he'd raised the English fjord to supplement his forces, and then took them on his ships to Denmark. Now, I'm going to offer my opinion now. I have nothing to back this up, I will say. But it is my belief that here in the year 1024, when Canute summoned the English fjord to join him in his expedition to Denmark, he would have included the fjord of London. I have three reasons to believe this. The first, London was a hostile city who had kept the lid on by keeping 40 ships garrisoned in and around Southwark. His trip to Denmark would have used these ships, which would have meant that London was left without a garrison. And the last thing he would have wanted to do was leave a potentially hostile city like London ungarrisoned as he went off and dealt with a rebellion by his own brother-in-law. Now, it would make sense. He would want the Fjord of London exactly where he could see them, on the ships on the way to Denmark. Secondly, by this stage in 1024, London had shown it had some pretty fierce warriors. What with having both defeated Canute's forces numerous times and defeated his father's forces at least twice, London's reputation for fighting Danes and other Scandinavians was so good that only eight years previous, an English army in Mercia had refused to fight a Scandinavian force without Londoners joining their ranks. As such, given this expertise, that's another reason why Canute probably wanted the Londoners and his forces sailing to Denmark. And finally, London at this stage had several decades worth of experience being the home of the English fleet and engaging in ship and land-based operations, kind of like what the Vikings did. They wouldn't have to be taught what to do. They knew how to operate. It would simply make all the sense in the world for those three reasons for Canute to have called upon London 
to show their loyalty to him and maybe rewrite their slate with him by summoning the Fjord and getting them to join his ships and the expedition across the North Sea. As I said, I've got no evidence to support this supposition. It is just speculation. But it makes total sense to me. And so I honestly believe that here in 1024, a contingent of Londoners, probably a sizable contingent of Londoners, boarded the ships at Southwark and sailed a three or four day journey to Denmark, led by Canute, who was accompanied by his wife, Queen Emma. Which means those Londoners would have sailed into the chaos of Denmark at this time. Now it turns out that Ulf and Hartha Canute were totally relieved that Canute had turned up, given that Olaf and the Norwegians and the Swedes were now breathing down their necks. Canute, for his part, had brought an army, half expecting to find his son and brother-in-law arrayed against him. He immediately offered to defend his son, provided young Hartha Canute surrendered to him, which both his son and Ulf eventually did. At this news, however, the Norwegians and the Swedes utterly freak out. The last thing they expected was to suddenly find Canute there, and now not only with the loyalists of Denmark at his back, but he had a bunch of his finest warriors which had been previously stationed in England with him, and he had the very handy Scandinavian killing experts of the English Fjord with him as well. The forces of Norway and Sweden then issued the lesser-known Viking battle cry, run away, and retreated in their ships back into the Baltic. But Canute had not sailed all this way for nothing, seems a shame to build such a large fleet and not use it, and no sooner had he secured Denmark again, than he immediately went on the offensive and sailed his ships into the Baltic straight after them. And what then happens is the epic battle of Helga River, one of the most important battles in Scandinavian history. It is a total bloodbath, and a horror show of the battle with quite frightening and ferocious fatalities. And most of the fighting apparently was centred around Canute's giant flagship, as the Norwegians and the Swedes had tried to cut the head of the snake, but they failed. At the end of the battle, the Swedes technically won as they were in control of the water, but Canute had still enough men and enough ships to pull off a tactical masterstroke afterwards. Remember, this was the man who was not as good as general as, say, Edmund Ironsides, but was a way better strategist. He understood how to turn a loss into a victory. Canute withdrew his fleet and then used them to blockade the Baltic Sea. No ship could get past his fleet in Denmark now. The remaining Swedes and Norwegians and their fleets were now stuck in the Baltic. Now this wasn't really that much of a piece of bad news for the Swedes, as they could just sail home, easy enough. But their Norwegian allies could not return to the coastal residence they lived in by boat, and so they had to make the very long and very harsh very arduous trip over the Scandinavian mountains and rough wilderness in winter. And apparently a significant number of these warriors who'd survived the battles died in the land journey. Canute had secured Denmark big time. 
In fact, he secured it so well that he was now able to go south to Rome and attend the coronation of the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad II. And when he was in Rome, Canute was not only exalted by his peers there as one of the main rulers of Europe, with him acting as a witness to the emperor's coronation, Conrad II also wished to and married off his son to Canute's daughter by 1028. Canute is suddenly this big a guy, this much of a player in European politics. And he wasn't even done yet. Canute was now able to focus his attention on Olaf's Norway. Sweden he could never rule entirely, as Sweden was not a unified polity. But Norway? Norway was right in his sights. So, we imagine that his ships that were garrisoned in London, um, and who survived the Battle of Helga River, would have returned, and any surviving London feared would have gone home. But no sooner had he returned from Rome than Canute raised more of the English feared, probably northern-based groups, for a campaign against Norway. Canute filled 50 ships with English thanes, sailed for Norway, and the people there basically flocked to his cause. The support for the now beleaguered Olaf just dissipated, and Olaf had to flee into exile. Canute now ruled Norway, and placed upon the throne Hakon, the son of the late most trusted advisor, Earl Erik Harkelson of Northumbria. Hakon was placed upon the throne and ruled Norway for him. Halfer Canute was now ruling Denmark for him. Godwin was effectively ruling England for him while he was not there. Canute was in 1028 genuinely able to style himself, and I quote, King of all England, Denmark, Norway, and part of Sweden, unquote. And we actually think the territory he ruled was even greater than that. See, in 1030, something happens in Wales. I mentioned earlier on how there'd been border skirmishes between the Welsh and the English. Well, in 1030, Canute seems to decide to deal with them, and how he dealt with them is actually very significant. See, in 1030, Canute launched an attack upon them that ravaged Wales. But this was a combined force of Canute's men and a Viking force from the Norse diaspora of the Irish Sea. And there's real gravitas about this alliance that we often miss. To the Norse of the Irish Sea, the Norse Gales of the Isle of Man, the Scottish Islands, the Irish Coast and more, Canute was like their dream come true. This was a force of men of Scandinavian origin, who had by now had over two centuries of living in this region. In terms of naval power, they were the geopolitical power still. No one else had been around to counter them in a few years. Now, the heyday had been a while ago. The great campaigns of Olaf Guthrison, we'd seen him lose one campaign against Ethelstan of England, but then take on and conquer the whole of northern England from his son. But those days had passed, and since the reign of Edgar the Peaceable, the English state had showed it could send fleets into the Irish Sea to bring retribution upon them, which had curtailed their ambition. I mean, it had only been a few decades since Ethelred of England had launched a counter-strike upon the diasporan communities in Strathclyde and the Isle of Man. They had no serious impact upon England since that date. But this all changed in the latter part of the 1020s. It's clear that while the Scandinavian diaspora of the Irish Sea, especially in Ireland, had no desire or ability to take Ireland, 
and were mostly subservient to Irish kings, they also sought to return to their glory days. And what better way to achieve that than to swear allegiance to this incredibly powerful Danish king? There was no better way. So it is clear that the Vikings of the Irish Sea sought to place themselves under the umbrella of the growing empire of Canute. And the first indication of this was actually a religious one. See, by now, the Norse-Gale inhabitants of Dublin were mostly Christian, and it was a fairly Christian town. And a big town, but it didn't have a bishop. And there was a reason why they didn't have a bishop. Any bishopric in Ireland would have been granted to them by the main diocese in Ireland, the See of Armagh. And as such, while the Norse in Dublin would occasionally bend the knee to some Irish warlord or overlord, having a bishop subservient to Armagh meant they had agreed that Dublin was ultimately property of the Irish. The ecclesiastical homage to Armagh was basically a final surrender, saying ultimately, no matter what, Dublin was an Irish town. And Dublin was, at this point, certainly not an Irish town. It was a Norse-scale town. It had its own king, Sithic, also known as Sithic Sithbeard, and he was the very definition of wily Irish sea Viking commander, if you ever saw it. And as such, in the later years of the 1020s, the Dubliners and their fellow residents of the Norse diaspora seemed to start making a beeline straight to Cunute and offered him their loyalty and their service in return for his protection. It is noticeable that on Cunute's royal charters from this era, a new name starts appearing as a witness to Cunute's proclamations. A man recorded in the English charters a Sithric ducks, Duke Sithric, and this at least suggests that Sithric was making friendly with Canute over in England, and instantly the fortunes of the Norse of the Irish Sea changed. Now they were safe, Dublin especially. No Irish king was going to mess with Dublin while it was under Canute's protection, and this is actually important. See, Sithric was king of the Dublin Vikings, but he was also a man involved in some serious crisis management. While often overlooked by English historians of this period, we have to contend with the fact that the uh, Irish Vikings of Dublin right now were an inch away from oblivion. Only a few years previously, in the year 1014, there had been the great and terrible battle of Clontaff, while Brian Boru, Mir Shechnir of of Ireland had led a massive force against the Norse of Dublin and their allies and comprehensively defeated them. It had been a bloodbath. The Irish were in a position, if they could, to immediately capitalise upon this and if they wanted they could have driven these Ostmen out of Ireland. But at the Battle of Clontaff, Brambaru had died and in the immediate aftermath his supporters had been too busy fighting amongst themselves to focus upon the Norse Gales of Dublin. And therefore, while it was seriously crippled and diminished, Dublin was not out of the fight. I mean, they formally would not come under full Irish dominion for at least another couple of generations. 
And so it appears that when Canute arose, the Irish Vikings saw a chance to get a brand new and awesome sugar daddy. And so they did this via two things. The first was to appeal to Canute for him to establish their bishopric, forever cementing that spiritually at least, the head of their community would be tied to the superstate being created by Canute. And Canute was more than happy to oblige by asking Ethelnoth, his compliant collaborator Archbishop of Canterbury, to just grant Dublin a bishopric. And thus a new bishop of Dublin was ordained, and under the jurisdiction of distant Canterbury, not much closer to home Armagh. In fact, the first six bishops of Dublin were under the jurisdiction of Canterbury and not much closer Armagh. But Canute had seemingly also wanted something back in return, and in 1030, the Vikings of the Irish Sea did just that by ravaging Wales on Canute's behalf. Canute's reach now seemed exceptionally long. I mean, he was able to reach into Ireland at this point. So what do we have as we approach the year 1030? Canute is coming across more and more as an emperor of the north. His trip to Rome, well often seen as, oh, he just went to Rome type affair in English eyes, comes across more and more that Canute was the first king of England taken seriously by the powers of Europe since Offa the Great of Mercia. And there's this huge, massive backstory about the rise of Conrad II as Holy Roman Emperor and how it threatened to drag Europe into a colossal war and the politics and jockeying of position that went on around it. And by all accounts, Canute was sought after by Conrad II and was seen as the power in the north of Europe. It should be noted that the 1020s had been a decade where there was great instability right across Europe. And the rise of Conrad II had not been without issue. And closer to home, there was another political crisis that Canute and England could not ignore. Richard II, the Duke of Normandy, brother of Queen Emma, died. And his son, Richard III, had taken the title of Duke of Normandy. And everybody was happy about this. Except his younger brother, Robert, who seemed to have felt he should be Duke of Normandy. And so he rebelled against his older brother. But while the fighting this caused was vicious and devastating, Richard III had won and Robert had been jailed and then released with the promise that he'd be loyal to his oldest brother. And so Robert promised. And so Robert was released. And then, a few months later, what a surprise. Richard III was suddenly dead. Nothing suspicious here. Move along. Anyway, Robert was now Duke of Normandy, with a grudge against everyone who had supported his brother over him. And that included his uncle, who was a bishop. So Robert had gone to war with his uncle, who was a bishop, and Robert had been excommunicated for going to war with his uncle, who was a bishop. But Robert really didn't seem to care. In time, when the dust settled, uh, Robert became known fondly by his people as Robert the Devil. Normandy had been devastated but Robert the Devil was in charge. He was also a man who, while he didn't marry, he did take a concubine, a local woman, who later sources said was the daughter of a tanner. Now, remember, tanning was the ancient art of turning cowskin into leather, 
by soaking it in vast quantities of human urine. Tanners were seen as smelly folk at best, an unclean, almost a lower caste of humans at worst. And Robert supposedly took the daughter of one of these guys as his lover. Now, all of this could be later BS said by Robert the Devil's many enemies to badmouth him and his concubine. But whatever the case, we know that Robert was to end up having a son by his partner, who may or may not have been the daughter of Atana, a son called William, a.k.a. William the Bastard, a.k.a. William the Conqueror. But that comes later. Suffice to say that in the 1020s, Europe was turning into a hot mess of conflict and Canute appeared to be running a single bastion of stability and mostly security, above all things. He ruled a vast territory. Norway was under the control of his nephew Harkon, Denmark under the control of his young son Harthur Canute, the king of Dublin and overlord of the Irish Sea Siddick had sworn loyalty to him, and in England, well, to quote the historian Timothy Bolton, quote, At the heart of the ruling elites of England, the royal court, Canute had successfully created a newly emergent culture, an entirely new Anglo-Scandinavian identity which was firmly in power, unquote. Canute has his Queen Emma, now a power unto herself, her name appearing at times in royal charters, second only to the king, a sign of her growth in status and gravitas. He had two very powerful English earls who had proven their loyalty to him in running much of southern England and the Midlands for him, Godwin and Leofric. And there was a steady stream of Danish nobles as well to supplement them, as well as the movement of Danes into critical English elite centres like London, as we mentioned last chapter. But this movement wasn't only one way. Canute was not about imposing Danishness upon the English. He was trying to create something new. For example, we have archaeological evidence to suggest that highly skilled English potters were moved to Danish elite centres like Viborg or Roskilde or Lund. We have good reason to suspect that also similarly highly skilled English artisans and builders were also moved over to work in Denmark. You can see it in the change in how churches were built in Denmark during this era. And also the sudden explosion in churches over there dedicated to St. Clement's. And I personally think there's reason to suspect that Canute not only moved a number of Danes into Southwark and in London, he also moved some Londoners to Denmark. Because it's during this era that the quality and quantity of coins produced in Denmark shows a significant and marked improvement. Canute moved coin makers, the English moneyers, to Denmark. And given that London was way and by far the largest of the coin manufacturing centres of England, and as I covered in a previous chapter, probably the centre of making coin, coin dyes for the rest of the country, for me that means that when you see the names of Englishmen now relocating to Denmark to oversee the improvement in the quality and design of Danish coins, men with names like Godwin and Ilfwine and Leofwine, I honestly believe that some of them had moved there from London to begin with. Canute was effectively the emperor of the north of Europe, 
and London, I think, had now turned a corner with their Danish overlord. Now, I don't think he was ever fully trusting of the city, but by 10.30 you get the distinct impression that the heat was off the place, that while their overking was Danish and was always moving and had men doing his bidding everywhere, that they did have a crucial role to play. As the, as the centre of the now pan-Scandinavian monetary system he was trying to bring in, as well as being the centre of Canute's standing fleet. That, while it was not a capital, London was a linchpin of a growing empire, the first time it had held such a role since the era of the Romans, over 500 years previous. Yet, this empire was not to last. Within just five years, this entire edifice was to come crashing down. It was to be reduced to the shadows and exists now only briefly in the umbra of English history, a umbral empire forever tantalizing us with what could have been but never came to be. London had spent the best part of a decade getting into their new king's good books, removing the cloud of uncertainty and hostility over them, probably by seeing its citizens join in with his attempts to approve things in Denmark, and even more probably joining in with his campaigns to pacify Scandinavia. London had spent a lot of time and effort and capital surviving and adapting once again, but the fall of this umbral empire was coming, and the Kingdom of London was to arise again, once again, it would begin to become the place that dictated who should run England. And how this happened, and how all that Canute was building to was to fall apart, was now heading towards London at breakneck speed. London is just about to find itself once again having a front row seat of an ongoing geopolitical crisis. And that's the bit we'll talk about next. And that's where I'll end it. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And there'll be another part going up next Wednesday. There'll be a version of this script that will go up for on Imager for everyone who wants to read along as we go forward. Usually about four or five days after the podcast goes up. And I'll be back again next week for another chapter of the story of London. Thank you for your support your kind uh, words on Imgur and also on various other forums and um, the feedback you've been giving me. It's been great. Right here. So I'll be back next week for chapter 38. Thank you.